0: I invite you to turn your Bibles to Matthew chapter 2 today. It is appropriate that during Christmas time we consider the birth of Jesus Christ, and thankfully as we begin Matthew, it's right at that time, and so we're now speaking about uh, the birth of Jesus Christ and the famous story of the visit of the Magi, or the wise men. Read with me Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. Amen. Now lingering, lingering under this passage is the providence of God. Um, you can see his sovereign management of the birth of Christ, um, the birth of Christ taking place in Bethlehem fulfilling the scriptures, God's sovereignty providing the star um, to guide the wise men, and then the dream guiding the wise men. Um, not to go back to Herod. And so you see God's orchestration of all these events, fulfilling his prophetic word. But today, I also want to make the point that God's sovereign goal was to fulfill his prophetic word so that his son may be worshipped. Worshipped. We sang today, "Let every heart prepare him room," which is a, a marvelous and wondrous phrase. Because there's, in order for our hearts to prepare him room, we need to empty ourselves of of much that is in us. Um, Jesus said to one of the Pharisees, "He said, I know that you are an offspring of Abraham." I know that you're biologically related, Abraham, yet you seek to kill me. Why? Because my word finds no place in you. Which I've always found an interesting phrase. My word finds no place in you. So every heart must prepare Christ's room. And the room is there to worship the Lord. He might fill us so that we might worship him. That's that's the father's goal for the son, that he might be glorified in his church. The passage begins with with people identified as wise men coming from the East looking to worship the one who was born king of the Jews. And so the Greek word here for wise men in the ESV, I don't know what your versions say, But the Greek word for wise men is Magoi, or Magi. And um, it is difficult to identify exactly who these people were, but they seem to be mystics from Babylon. Um, Daniel, in the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament, Daniel mentions Magi. And these were the enchanters, the dream interpreters from Babylon. So they were mystics, pagan mystics um, from Babylon. And by this time, the group of Magi had expanded to include dream interpreters. And those, those people who studied the scriptures of all religions. Um, this is about 500 years after Daniel. So we can, we can identify mag, magi, uh, broadly speaking, as those who study dream interpretation, astrology, and they studied the scriptures of many religions. So they were pagan mystics. Why did they believe then that this star, and apparently this was a very strange star, and I've read commentaries this week, um, where people throughout history have tried to identify the star and kind of the celestial movements and the timing of of, of comets and tried to identify the star. There's no general consensus. But clearly this was a, an unusual celestial phenomenon. And so the question is why, at least that was my question, why did the Magi think that this star was going to point to the king of the Jews, as prophesied in the sacred scriptures of the Old Testament. Well, first of all, I think they were looking at the stars because they were astrologers, and they thought there were meaning in the stars. Number two, as students of the sacred writings, they may have come across this messianic prophecy in Numbers twenty-four seventeen, which says a star shall come out of Jacob. So not only were they people who looked to the stars for meaning in the universe, but they, they saw in the Hebrew scriptures this prophecy about a star rising from Jacob, and this, this had messianic significance during their time. So we, uh, that's, that's what we think, but we're actually not informed about their assumptions at all We know that, all we know is that they're pagan astrologers who discerned the Messiah's birth by the appearance of this certain and strange star. And strangely enough, they have come to worship the king of the Jews. I think this is a perfect paradigm for how God deals with those who have never heard the gospel. Um, He meets them where they are. And then he brings them to Christ. He meets them where they are and then he brings them to Christ. Jesus said, the one who seeks finds. I've always wanted to encourage someone to be a seeker of the truth because as Christians who are confident that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, we believe that if they are a seeker for truth, if they find truth, they'll wind up at Christ. So we're not afraid of people who are spiritually seeking for truth. As again, Jesus said, the one who seeks finds. Now this, this describes a true seeker, not someone who says they're a seeker, but a true seeker will find. So if someone is truly seeking God, truly seeking the creator of the universe, not just emotional healing, not just health, not just uh, traditional values, but if they are truly a seeker for the things of God and the meaning and logic of reality, then I, I am confident that God will meet that person where they are and he will lead them to Christ because the one who seeks finds. It is so interesting that in this passage, God chooses to reveal the truth to pagan mystics who were looking in the stars for meaning. And astrology was, was, um, was against the Old Testament law so I think this is this is just a perfect example even though they were pagans and looking at the stars what they were it seems they they were seekers and they are a paradigm for seekers. So just I think just as God did not leave these men in Babylon and just as he led them to the Christ, so he does not leave the spiritual seeker mm-hmm. in spiritual darkness. He does not leave them with blind eyes. He does not leave them with abstractions. Rather, he gives them some kind of direction, and he brings that person to Jesus Christ. And so maybe the way he does that is he sends somebody, somebody in their way. Somebody in their path, perhaps an evangelist To sow the seed of the gospel in them But he will bring them to Christ And that's that's a point I really want to hit to you here If there's a spiritual seeker Notice where God leads them He leads them to Christ He doesn't save them apart from Christ He leads them to Christ And this is God's, the Father's mode of operation He does not deviate from this if you look in Acts chapter 10, the story of Cornelius was, a, was a, a man who gave alms and he prayed, and what did God do with them? Did he just, well, grant him salvation because he's a good man, he prayed and he gave alms? No, he sent him a Peter who would teach him about the Christ. This is how God works. He works by exposing people to his son who is the way, the truth and the life. So I, I, the two parts of the spiritual seeker, he meets them where they are and he brings them to Christ. He will not meet them where they are and then grant them kind of some kind of salvation without bringing them to Christ. No, he will open their eyes, he will move them from darkness to light and he will allow the Christ to shine in their hearts in repentance and faith. You follow me on that? As Christians, we believe this, not only because we see this as a mode of operation in scripture by the Father, but because of Jesus' many statements which, in which he is identifying himself as the only avenue, the only avenue towards reconciliation with the Father. I am the way, he said, the truth and the life. Nobody comes to the Father except by me. I am the door. My favorite is, I think it was, was it Mary or Martha who was crying because his, his, um, her brother Lazarus was dead. And she said, I know he will rise again in the resurrection. And Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection. Mm-hmm. I love that because the resurrection that day which is anticipated in the Old Testament, this general resurrection of the dead, has begun in Jesus Christ. And through faith in him, you are united to God's resurrection life so that the words, though he die, yet shall he live, for those who believe in me, can be true about you through your union with Jesus Christ. So, the one who seeks finds. The problem is some don't actually seek and they may call themselves seekers, but they don't actually seek. Um, I know people who have exposed the gospel many times and in multiple ways and there seems seems to be uh, an unwillingness and a blindness and a hardness. That's not a true seeker, though they might identify themselves as a seeker. So note the difference about that. That doesn't mean give up on people. Amen? Yeah. You, keep, you keep preaching Christ to them, and you keep sowing the seeds in their heart, and then you trust that the Lord, we're not the Holy Spirit. We can't bring somebody to the gospel ourselves, but we are called, we are called to be something like the star here, to be a guide that points to Jesus Christ. So, Gentiles from the East, pagan mystics, come from the east who are looking in the stars for meeting, they're guided by the Lord to the newborn king whom was prophesied in the Old Testament writings. The problem in this passage arises when Herod hears about this. When uh, Herod hears about this, it's in verse, where are we? Verse 3. When Herod the king, get this, when Herod the king Let that linger for a second. Verse two, the wise men ask, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. A few facts about Herod, also known as Herod the Great. he began to reign in the providence of Judea, which is lower Israel from 37 BC to four AD. He was appointed king of Judea by the Romans. So he was a puppet, puppet king. He wasn't somebody who, who the Jews were actually looking to to guide them in paths of righteousness. He was installed as a king by the Romans to watch over this unruly group of Jewish people and to establish Roman rule in Israel. And so he did. And actually he was an excellent city planner. If you've read anything about Herod, you know that he restored the temple in Jerusalem to be be an incredible monument to architecture. So even in the gospels, um, you see the disciples uh, saying to Jesus, look at the beauty, look at the stones of this temple. Herod rebuilt the temple, he who was an, he was a, an incredible city, city planner. He built palaces, he built fortresses throughout Israel, he built other cities and he, and he taxed the people high but he was actually such a good planner that when famine hit the land, he was able to stave off any kind of, um, any kind of serious dread or turmoil in the area. So he was a puppet king, but he was a good ruler in that sense. The problem with Herod, as you know, is that he was ruthless in his rulership. He was a paranoid king throughout his whole time in leadership. And he was was paranoid and defensive that someone would usurp his throne and he would ruthlessly protect his throne. We know that he murdered several of his associates who he thought would come to power and challenge his kingship and his throne. We know that he murdered at least two of his sons because they were seen as threat to his throne. And we also know, I believe the day of his death that he murdered his wife as well lest she usurp his throne even after his death. So this is, was, was not a well man. He was an intelligent city planner, but he was paranoid, defensive, and ruthless as a king. And he was protective of his throne. So knowing that about Herod, knowing that about Herod, how do you think he responded when people from Babylon come looking for the King of the Jews. Do you see now why this presents such a problem in the narrative? So in attempts to um, discern where this Messiah, where this King of the Jews would be born, he summons the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders of Israel, who study the scripture, who know the scripture very well. In verse 4, he assembled all the chief priests and the scribes of the people, and he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. So where do people think this Christ would be born then? Where is this prophesied king of the Jews to come from? The scribes and the priests answered him, with a prophecy from Micah 5.2. And you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers, from, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. It's Micah 5.2. So that gave Herod a general location. Bethlehem is where Jewish people expected the Messiah to be born. And if there was some kind of coup forming around a newborn baby in Bethlehem by some Jewish rebels, then Herod was going to be sure to crush that coup and put it to death. That's his aim. Now verse 16 might have been his aim all along. We read in verse 16, we'll cover this more closely next week, we read in verse 16 that Herod, when he saw he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious, sent and killed all the male, male children in Bethlehem. That might have been his plan all along, but um, what he does in this passage right here is he kind of unknowingly appoints these wise men to be spies for him so that they could locate the exact infant that he suspects these Jewish rebels are expectantly gathering around, and then he could put that infant to death and put it to a brutal end, as he did with his wife, wife, as he did with his sons, as he did with his associates. Nobody was going to usurp Herod's throne, if he had anything to do about it. So, um, Herod views Christ as a threat to his throne. And he will do everything to remove that threat from the world so that he's not displaced as king by some expectant, prophesied Messiah. Christ was a threat to his throne. And not just not, not only was Christ a threat to his throne, because he was correct about that, but he's actually a threat, I, I see a spiritual application here, because he is a threat to all men's thrones, amen? Mm-hmm. Christ is a threat to our throne and our lordship over our own lives. He is the true king. He will displace us as lord of our lives. So there is almost, you could almost say there's a Herod in every man. There's a Herod in every man who will not allow Christ to be king in their heart. And this is why the phrase, let every heart prepare him room, requires a death to self, requires that a mortification, a putting to death, of that kind of Herod-like tendency in the human heart. If Yes, Christ is the door to your salvation, and Christ is the door to eternal life and joy in him. But he is also the Lord of your life. He is also the king, and he has rightful claim over your life. We talk, we talk a lot about the benefits of salvation, but there is also the requirement of salvation. If anyone does not deny himself, take up his cross and follow me, he is not worthy of me. And, and the, the Herod in men, in me, in you, and in those people who we are trying to evangelize even today, and bring them into the kingdom, through the gospel, those people, the Herod in them, will be offended at this message. And they will not bring themselves under Christ's law, and they will not join Christ's people, and they will not serve Christ's mission. But what did, John, what did Jesus tell John's disciples? He says, go and tell John what you see. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, the good, the poor have good news preached to them. This is a lot of good stuff. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. So there is, there is a high demand for discipleship. And we shouldn't, be, we shouldn't be nervous about that. We shouldn't be shy about that. It's not just you have to repent, we get to repent we get to turn to the lord and his yoke although we must come under it his yoke is easy and his burden is light so we when we when we talk about salvation when we talk about coming to Christ it is not it not only includes the fulfillment of everything that you that your deepest affections actually long for, but it is also a death to your deepest inclinations and proclivities. It's it's a death to yourself so that you can be alive through Christ. Um, Compare Herod's response here, not allowing the Christ to usurp him or displace him from the throne, with John the Baptist's response, which is, he must increase and I must decrease. That is the call of the gospel. It is to, it's not just to enter the kingdom and sa- find salvation, but it's to decrease so that he might increase. So I think I think as Christians, there is a, a proper way to discern the Herod in your heart and put it to death because there's part of us that does not want Christ to be on the throne. There is a part of us that does not want to prepare our hearts room for him. So get this, that's how the king of the Jews, although he was installed by the Romans, that's how the king of the Jews responded to the scripture that prophesied to him about the Christ. What was the response now of pagan astrologers from Babylon who were not guided by scripture but guided by a star in the sky? Verse 11, or verse 10, when they they saw the star, Well, so they, Herod kind of sends them on this quasi-mission. They listened to the king. They rose and went up and followed the star. They saw the star with great joy, and then they went into the house that it hovered over. And verse 11, And when they saw the child with Mary, his mother, they fell down and worshipped him. They fell down and worshipped him. The word the Greek word there is proskuneo, which is an attitude, a heart attitude of worship that actually had a physical way of expressing itself. They would bow down, you would prostrate, you would kneel in honor of somebody. You bowed down to worship the king in honor of a superior. So here are these pagan mystics, not being guided by scripture, but guided by a star in the sky who came and unlike the king of the Jews, comes to bow down and worship before the prophesied Messiah. And what do they give him? They give him gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Gold, obviously, a very costly metal. Frankincense was like an incense that, you would, that would provide an aroma, and myrrh was like a perfume. The common denominator in all those three gifts is that they were costly. Very costly. Worship was attended with costly sacrifice for these, um, for these magi. And that is the appropriate response for a king. Costly worship and sacrifice. And I think, I think, just pause there for a second. They give him their very best. And Christ deserves your very best. Sacrifice. Worship is very often costly Worship doesn't require you To be in the right position Or it doesn't require you The sacrifice of worship Which is not only praise But sacrifice in, in other ways With your time With your, with your offering With your obedience in various ways to Christ, that kind of sacrifice, it's not like God is waiting for your life to be perfectly ironed out before you begin to worship him in these areas of your life. Sacrifice is costly. When... um There's a scene in, in 2 Samuel 24 When David wants to sacrifice He has to make a sacrifice And he's buying He, he wants to make a sacrifice And he says to this man, Arunah, who, um Who offers him oxen And a place for sacrifice for free To King David You know what King David says? He says, no, I will buy it from you. I will will not offer burnt offerings to the Lord that has cost me nothing. I've always loved that line. I will not offer to the Lord what has cost me nothing. Sacrifice is very costly sometimes. No, not, not sometimes. Sacrifice is always costly. And worship is sacrifice. So I think it's a beautiful thing that the Lord smiles upon when a brother or a sister sacrifices in a costly way for the kingdom of God. And I see, I see this church doing that in many ways. And, and I want to say well done to all of you. I see, I see much sacrifice going on in discreet and hidden ways. So, it is a good thing to sacrifice in a way that's costly. Now, um, again, the, 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 the real thrust of this passage is seen in just comparing. Comparing the king Jerusalem with the Magi. Notice who does and who does not worship in this passage. The king and the leaders in Jerusalem were troubled when they heard about the Christ being born in in Bethlehem. While the pagan mystics come, they fall down and they worship. So that, that actually begins a pattern in the New Testament where God's people are rejecting their king. Um, you see throughout the Gospels the Jewish leaders w- would reject Christ out of envy and self-protection throughout. Uh, there's, there's this almost It's almost comical when Jesus um, exercises a demon from a man and sends them into the pigs. You know what the people did? It says in Mark 5, 17, they begged him to depart from their country. <laughs> then when Christ was sacri- before Christ was sacrificed, sacrificed and they were deciding whether to crucify him or not, Pilate says, shall I crucify your king? And what did the, the Jewish people say? We have no king but Caesar constantly rejecting their Messiah, so that that is why John 1 says, he came to his own and his own did not receive him. But to all, to all who did receive him, he gave the right to become sons of God. So this this pattern, this sets the pattern of rejecting Jesus to hold on to power, Or authority or affluence or influence in the New Testament. And it shows you here that knowledge of Scripture does not mean the knowledge of Christ. These scribes and the Pharisees knew the Scriptures very well, but they did not have the knowledge of Christ. Why? They did not prepare their heart room for the Christ. Their hearts did not prepare him room. So, The one one thing I wanna leave you with today is I want you to know to what end God's sovereign orchestration of these events has been geared towards. The father has been guiding the wise men and he guided them to Christ in order to give the son the worship he is due, to give him the worship he is due. Even if, if that worship will not come from his own people, then they will come from across the sea. This is why when when Jesus came into Jerusalem riding on a donkey, and they were saying, Hosanna, Hosanna in the highest, the Jewish people said, tell these people the." that they're blaspheming to stop worshiping you. And Jesus said, if these did not worship, then the rocks themselves would cry out because creation was made to worship Christ. We talk about trusting in Jesus Christ and you should. We talk about obedience to Jesus Christ and you should obey. It's a very wise thing. But the the ultimate end, for which God created the world and even the rocks themselves is to cry out in worship to the Son Jesus Christ. That's why you were saved. You are not saved for yourself alone. you were saved unto worship. Let, let that be, please let that be a framing narrative for our church. Trusting. Obedient,
1: worshipful,
0: worshipful—everything you do for the Lord. When I say worship, it's not just the singing, although that's part of worship. I mean a life of worship, of sacrifice. Paul says Romans.